begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. Everlasting. Amen. All right, and we'll uh, continue with the hymn of the month, uh, stanzas two and four, stanzas two and four of songs of thankfulness and praise. (laughs) Manifest that Jordan stream, prophet, priest, and king supreme, and at Cana wedding guest, in thy Godhead manifest. Manifest in power divine, changing water into wine. Anthems be to thee addressed, God in man made manifest. Sun and moon shall darken be, stars shall fall, the heavens shall flee. Christ will then like lightning shine, all will see his glorious sign. All will then the trumpet hear, all will see the judge appear. Thou by all wilt be confessed, God in man made manifest. We'll continue with the um, catechism memory work from Christian questions and answers, questions 18 and 19. Finally, why do you wish to go to the sacrament? That I may learn to believe that Christ, out of great love, died for my sin and also learn from him to love God and my neighbor. What should admonish and encourage a Christian to receive the sacrament frequently? First, both the command and the promise of Christ the Lord. Second, his own pressing need, because of which the command, encouragement, and promise are given. And the Bible memory work. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 2, 5. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things, Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can go off to Sunday school. (laughs) Uh, So for the sake of our visitors, normally we we start out with the opening devotion um, that you can take home with you and carry throughout the week if you'd like. Um, and then I like to talk a little bit about the hymnody that we sing and about the catechism and Bible memory work before we jump into um, the meat of the Bible study, which we're doing um, Bible history right now. 
We've been doing Bible history since I became a pastor here for like two years ago. But, you know, that's how things go. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, it's basically the entire Bible, about overview of the Bible. So um, for the, the hymnody, so we, we sang stanzas two and four today of songs of thankfulness and praise. And uh, I just want to point out one quick thing about this is um, in stanza two, uh, we get this the first line, manifest at Jordan's stream, uh, prophet, priest, and king supreme. Prophet, priest, and king. And you might have heard this uh, phrase before, these three titles of Jesus put together uh, in in an in tandem with one another, that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Who's heard that before? Who's heard that? Okay, good. So these are what we call the three offices of Christ. And uh, it's a way to talk about... Uh, so obviously we can kind of talk in generalities that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, that he came to, um, to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament in a sense, or to fulfill the law... We can talk about the atonement. We can talk about all these different ways and things that Jesus came to do for us. But uh, one of the things that Jesus comes, whenever he comes, this is especially appropriate appropriate in Epiphany, um, that Jesus is being revealed to us as he's come on earth. One of the things he's come to do, especially looking back to Old Testament prophecy, is to fill these three offices. So uh, these are three, if you think about it, kind of Old Testament offices, and this ties right in line with our Bible history, um, something we've talked about in the kingdoms of Judah and Israel recently, is how the kings, to be good kings, need to uh, have right worship, right, which involves the priesthood, uh, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And they need to listen to the word of the prophets. Um, The prophets bring God's word to bear on the lives of the people. And so you have these three kind of important offices in the Old Testament. Um, Parallel also, in, in a way, if you think about it, to the three types of law in the Old Testament. You have the civil law or the civic law guiding the ways of the, the people of Israel as a nation, which would kind of correlate to the king. You have the ritual law, um, which would correlate the laws governing the worship of Israel, which would correlate to the priest. And you have the moral law, which would correlate to the words of the prophets guiding the, um, the lives and the mor- morality of the people of, of Israel, right? So um, these are kind of three major overarching offices of the Old Testament. Well, all of them, uh, when we get to the New Testament, are just like the, all the law is fulfilled in Jesus. Um, so are these offices. Jesus takes these offices onto himself. Um, and there are certainly prophecies in the Old Testament that would point us to, to see that the Messiah, that Jesus, is going to do that. So, for instance... Um, the prophet, you can look at Deuteronomy 18, when God tells Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among you, but who will be better than you, <laughs> um, will be different than you, uh, a greater prophet that will arise, right? And that's why, like, when um, the Pharisees come to John the Baptist and they ask uh, who he is, they ask, are you the prophet, right? They're talking about Deuteronomy 18, Um You have uh, the priesthood, so you can look at places like, uh, for instance, off the top of my head here, I I believe it's Psalm 110 that speaks of the of Melchizedek, um, the the prof the priest that is not of the tribe of Aaron, right? So remember, Jesus is not a a Levite. What tribe is is Jesus descended from? The tribe of Judah. Right, he's a my, my marker's dying here. Um, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. And Melchizedek is this priest, right? That um, 
in Genesis makes a offering um, to Abraham, and Abraham praises him as this priest that's uh, the this special priest that's different. And then um, in Psalm 110 we get this: uh, a pre- "You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." I believe it's Psalm 110. I, someone can double check me on that. But uh, and then in Hebrews we get a whole chapter on Melchizedek about how Jesus is this new priest, this different kind of priest. Um, I believe that's Hebrews 7, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I probably should have wrote these down since I knew I was going to talk about this a little bit. But um, yeah, that. So, so you can you can kind of see the outfolding of Jesus as priest. But the idea of Jesus being priest. Um, is that he is this this special priest, this priest forever, right? This uh, priest not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, not of the tribe of Levi, but of the tribe of Judah. But how is he our priest? Well, the main way he's our priest is because he makes the sacrifice for us, right? Um, oh, okay, yeah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, okay. Um, he's the priest because he makes the sacrifice, and not only is he the priest, but he is also the sacrifice itself, right? Um, he's both the, the one offering the sacrifice, and then he is uh, the, the sacrifice itself. Okay, so those are some places you can look for Jesus as priest. And then king, uh, you can look at like Psalm 2 for that, that uh, God has set his son on his holy hill and that all the kings of the earth are going to bow their knee to Jesus one day, um, or even even better, as you're probably more familiar with, that we've talked about many times uh, with the kingdom, and we get these phrases all over in Second Chronicles that we've been looking at. That well, for, first of all, let me. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Second Samuel seven. That, G- that God is going to establish the, the throne of David that's going to be an everlasting kingdom. And who's that king going to be? It's going to be the Messiah. It's going to be Jesus, right? Um, but you get all these, uh, you know, even after David in the divided kingdom, like we've been looking at it, with the uh, tribe of Judah and the kings of Judah. And we're going to see it today, actually, in Jehoram, that the author of the Chronicles says, uh, but the Lord, something along the lines of, but the Lord did not destroy Jehoram's house because of his promise to the tribe of Judah, right? So God preserves the people of Judah to bring about the kingship of Jesus, right? Um, and that also connects to stanza four in the hymn, by the way, of uh, when Jesus comes again um, in his final epiphany, right? Uh, Christ will then, like lightning so- shine, all will see his glorious sign. All then the trumpet here, all will see the judge appear. Uh, judge appear. Thou by all wilt be confessed, right? Eventually, every that's Psalm two. Everyone's going to recognize Jesus as King, right? Right now, not everyone recognizes Jesus as King, but one day everyone will see him for who he is, and and every knee will bow, right? And when he establishes the new heavens and the new earth, he will be our king, right? He will be the ruler of his people. Um, you know, not some politician, but Jesus will be the ruler of his people, right? He will be the, the monarch, the supreme. So we get these offices of, of Jesus. So I, um, you can see how much is kind of jammed into that phrase, prophet, priest, and king. There's a lot there. And uh, it is a good good way to talk about the offices of Jesus. Um, and I can even you can get, I keep thinking of more Bible passages that relate to this. So, um, just uh, for instance, in John 17, um, Jesus offers a priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer. It's an entire chapter of prayer from. Jesus to his father, which is the prayer of a of a priest. Um, there's so there's so many ways in which you can think about this. There's so many ways in which he uh, fulfills these offices, but uh, that is a beautiful way in which Jesus is manifest 
is by these three this threefold office that he that he possesses. Any questions on that or on the hymn in general that we've been singing? Okay. So for the uh, Christian questions and their answers and uh, the Bible memory work, uh, first of all, I'll point out that Ephesians 2.5 is actually a great uh, priestly verse for Jesus, right? As And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, right? That, that Jesus offered, just like the priest of old, um, offered incense and uh, the... The sacrifices, the burnt offerings, that the the smoke would you know rise up to to heaven and um, be a, a fragrant a gift of a fragrant offering. Uh, that Christ did the same for us on the cross, right? He offered Himself up on the cross to uh, make propitiation for our sins. So that's a great Bible verse for that. But the thing I want to point out in these Christian questions and answers, and um. Well, two things and the Bible memory work. First of all, in question 18, finally, why do you wish to go to the sacrament? That I may learn to believe that Christ out of great love died for my sin and also learn from him to love God and my neighbor. So this is just one of many, many ways that we see uh, in the catechism and in scripture that you cannot separate um, you can distinguish, but you cannot separate justification and sanctification. They go together. Um, this is partly what the sermon is about today. And so it's kind of on my mind, but it is interesting to me. So, so obviously the sacrament, we've covered this over the last, like, many questions in the Christian questions and their answers. Obviously, the sacrament is primarily for to deliver the forgiveness of sins, right? It's primarily connected to our, in some ways, to our justification. It's, a, um, as we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, if you're here for that, uh, it's a means of grace, right? Uh, the, oh, this is a good one right here. Um, the, that feels nice. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's a way that God delivers his grace to us. Um, and so it is primarily connected to the forgiveness of sins, to justification. However, uh, in receiving that grace, that grace works in us. And that the the spirit that God gives us um, and the, the gifts that he gives us work in us uh, a strengthening of our faith to love God and love our neighbor. So, um, so first of all, that I may learn to believe that Christ out of great love died for my sin, right? That's the justification side of things. And also to learn from him there as we receive his body and blood, as we are connected with Jesus in this way of uh, becoming so intimately connected with Jesus, we even are receiving his body and blood, that we would live our life like him, right? That we would imitate him, that we would live our life in love to God and love to our neighbor. Um, and so so that's, I think, an important thing uh, to think about is that when we receive the Lord's Supper, we're not just receiving um, the forgiveness of our sins, we're also being strengthened in the faith and learning to love uh, God and our neighbor even better, right? So uh, it's a growing of our faith as well, not just um, the forgiveness of our of our sins. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to point out is this um, question that Luther writes in uh, verse nine or in ch- not verse in the, the question nineteen. What should admonish and encourage a Christian to receive the sacrament frequently? Um, first, both the command and the promise of Christ our Lord. Second, his own pressing need, because of which the command, encouragement, and promise are given. So he's going to go on um, in the next couple questions to actually say some things I find humorous, like if you don't believe you need the sacrament, are you, are you, uh, um, do you believe 
you're a sinner. If you don't believe you're a sinner, look at what Scripture says. Pinch yourself. Look around you. See and look at look at the world. See if uh, you're still living in the world. <laughs> it's uh, kind of humorous the way he goes on. But the word I want to um, just zoom in on there is frequently. That uh, for for some well I know basically why, but for historical reasons, let's say uh, the Lutheran Church when when they came to America started to decrease their frequency of communion. Now part of that was that there weren't a lot of pastors to go around. And there were circuit riders, right? And pastors couldn't get to a congregation, but maybe once a month sometimes. And another part of that was something that also affects a lot of things in the history of Lutherans in America, which is other surrounding Christians, the Reformed, um, the the Methodist, other other denominations that were also coming in with immigration and um, what kind of practices they were doing. And then you kind of feed off of each other and, and, and copy one another. And so basically, long story short, um, a number of Lutheran churches uh, decreased the frequency of communion all the way down to even sometimes four times a year at, at minimum. And then, you know, very common, I think, was once a month. And then uh, since then, over the years... Lutherans have started to kind of read more Lutheran things again, right? And, uh, come on in, um, have started to even reread, you know, I think Luther himself and what he says about the Lord's Supper and started to question, well, why why don't we have it more often, right? Why don't we have uh, the Lord's Supper more often? Because when you when you read what Luther says here, even in our small catechism, um, he says that we should receive it frequently. And why should we receive it frequently? Um, well, one, Jesus commands us to. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we really shouldn't have a limit on how often we're proclaiming his death, right? Um we shouldn't limit ourselves to how much we talk about Jesus on the cross. And uh, also, he says, you know, do this in remembrance of me, right? Um, he doesn't say do this, but only ever so often. He just says do it. <laughs> and uh, obviously, the practice of the uh, early early Christians was to, to do this every time they, they met, right? This is part of their worship was the, the word and sacrament, right? Act, Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. Um, so, and then that, that kind of continued into the, the Middle Ages. You can, there was problems with the private masses in the late medieval Roman Catholic Church and where priests were off um, celebrating the Lord's Supper on their own and no one knew about it and they were doing it every day just to earn, uh, you know, merits for the, the treasury of merits so that they could spend less time in purgatory. That was a problem. But as far as celebrating the Lord's Supper in worship together, um, Lutherans have always uh, basically said, and this is in the Book of Concord in the Lutheran Confessions, we should do this um, every Lord's Day, right? Whenever we gather together. And uh, Luther says here in the small catechism, frequently. And so I think it's it's good that we've gone from a place where oftentimes communion was only being celebrated maybe once a month to now, I'd say this is just my experience of Lutheran churches, um, which I, I have been to a lot of Lutheran churches. Maybe the Gudgels can help us here because they, they travel to Lutheran churches a lot. Um, my experience is maybe 50% of Lutheran churches, LCMS churches today, have communion every Sunday. And then the other 50% probably have it every other Sunday. That's that's I think that's kind of where we're at now. And I think that's a lot better. Um, I think it would be good if everyone had it every Sunday. Um, but but if, if not, that I mean, that's fine too. It's not like the word doesn't work without the Lord's Supper. But um, the Lord's Supper is very much a part of our worship and very much a part of 
um, what we do, and even in the small catechism here, right, we should receive it frequently uh, because the Lord promises that it's good for us and because we're sinners and it brings the forgiveness of sins, right? So why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we have it? You know, you know, uh, so this is something I learned this week. This is kind of interesting. Melchizedek, when he met with Abraham, we just talked about that before you got here, but go oh, ahead. Okay. No, go ahead. Johnny, come lately. No, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna enlighten us on something else, I'm sure, though. And he, and he, so. so he brought out the bread and the wine. That's all it says that he actually brought out, and he was the priest of of uh, God. And then later, it says that he was not, he had no lineage, no. Right. And he was a priesthood forever, and that this was the priesthood of Jesus. Is and that, so I just thought that really it's kind of interesting that that's the first Lord's Supper ever. Given. Yeah, the uh, there's definitely these overtones in the Old Testament of bread and wine being um, same thing with water and baptism. I I wouldn't say that like that is the Lord's Supper because along the timeline of Bible history, Jesus hasn't actually instituted it yet. But similarly to like the Red Sea and baptism, right? This is a foreshadowing of what's to come um, or Noah's Ark and baptism, right? This is a foreshadowing of what God's going to do with water. He's going to save his people by bringing them through the water. And um, yeah, that happens with uh, the the manna, right? That happens with Melchizedek. It happens... Um, with also in, with Abraham in Genesis 18, when the angel of the Lord comes and uh, Sarah prepares uh, bread for the at the table at the table of where where God is. Um, so we have these overtones of what God's going to do with bread um, and and wine, even in the Old Testament, and then that that comes to fruition at the institution of the Lord's Supper. So. Yeah, it's good. Great connection. Yeah, we were talking about um, Melchizedek as the priest forever, uh, the one without the lineage of Levi. That Jesus comes not not a Levite, but still the priest, right? So, yeah, good connection. Okay. So, any questions on any of that? Any uh, thoughts, comments? Yeah. Just as a comment, I think that every Sunday communion is becoming more prominent yeah. throughout. The yeah, that's my sense as well. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Yeah. yeah. If, you're gonna, if you're gonna preach the full gospel, wouldn't that be just, I mean, that, that would kind of be mandatory in fulfilling the idea of teaching the full gospel would be serving communion, right? Yeah, the, uh, it's, it certainly brings the fullness of the gospel to bear on those people in that place at that time. Um, and to, to me, it's, uh, it's not a question of like, it, it's hard to say, well, if you don't have communion and you just have a service of the word, like say we do on Wednesday nights during Advent, that that's not also the, the, the gospel for the people, right? Um, like, Sure, it absolutely is. It's the word of God, right? It's it's the it's the it's the preach word. It's it is a means of grace, um, just like the Lord's Supper is. But to to me, maybe the historic argument is even the maybe one of the better arguments that this is just what Christians always did. Um, they devoted themselves to the break to the preaching of the word, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers, like that. That Acts 2 definition of a church service is um, just what that, – that is the structure of like Christian church services from the time of the disciples who learned how to be pastors from Jesus <laughs> until uh, – I mean obviously there's a whole variety of practice throughout the world and all Christian denominations now. But um, that structure of the liturgy remains the same, right, and we continue in that – in that train, and you're right that that is part of the whole counsel of God, that He institutes the Lord's Supper for our good, um, and He institutes it as His means of grace, 
right? And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Sometimes people have pushed not not in this congregation. When we everyone, to my memory, maybe I'm remembering wrong. To my memory, when we switched to every Sunday communion a couple of years ago, uh, everyone was really excited about it. Um, and uh, we just had to figure out some details with like the altar guild. But other than that, um, I think everyone was on board. At least they were being nice to me because I was a new pa- <laughs> I was a new pastor, so that could be it too. But um, but now no one uh, now no one you know remembers not having it every Sunday, so it's it's all good. Um, I have vague memories. You do have vague memories, okay? Uh, but oh yes, yeah, so I was gonna say is the the one argument that I've that's generally brought against having it every Sunday. Um, generally, just when people have grown up with it, not every Sunday, and then it's like weird to do it every Sunday, is that they say, well, maybe it's it wouldn't be as special if we had it every Sunday, and. Um, my response to that is, well, no one would complain if we had baptisms every week, right? right. Would baptisms be less special? Um, I knew a pastor once who said, no one would say that about steak dinners, right? <laughs> uh, so if you had a if you had a steak dinner every night, you'd be fine. Yeah. And you know, also, you know, why why have church every Sunday then? You know. If, right. Yeah. Right. Maybe we should just have church once a month. <laughs> Maybe I should only preach once a month. That would be really special, right? Um, but so that that's always kind of a funny thing people say. But I understand if you grow up with something and then it's you know changes it hard. changes right yeah changes hard. Um, so, but I think it is always good. This is an example. Oh, I, I'm going way too long on this, but um, this is an example of I think a, something in church history that we can see happening in our lifetimes that is uh, Christians being honest with themselves that maybe we haven't always gotten everything perfect and maybe we need to uh, go back to the sources, go back to the Bible, go back to our theology and see how we can um, become more faithful, right? Like I, it, there, every generation has blind spots. You can see that in the history of Israel. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'll give you an example in Nebraska. Shadron, Nebraska, had communion every other Sunday. Uh-huh. All right, they needed an organist. A young girl that is from Grand Island, our hometown, had gone to school in Shadron and worked in a ranch close to Shadron. And as an organist, she said, they asked her to come and be their organist. She said, I can't because I need communion every Sunday. There you go. The elders changed, and Not, now they have communion every Sunday, it, so they can get an organist. If it means having an organist, they'll do it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, that's very sly. So I, I like that. All right, so, um, yeah, just, and like I said, my, my kind of final comment on that is, that this, I, I think it is good how we can see that working out in the church today, that it's a good example of how we can, even though like change is hard and um, things like that, we can still grow in our faithfulness as a church body, for instance, um, like we kind of talked about. So, all right, uh, moving on then. This is normally what happens. I talk too much about the catechism stuff and then I don't have a lot of time for the Bible stuff uh, like I would prefer, but I don't know. I like splitting. I like splitting things up too, and I like putting things in bite-sized pieces. So uh, let me get my sheet here. All right. So last week we we did finally finish up uh, the story of Jehoshaphat and. Um, how through his faithfulness and prayer and right worship and listening to the prophets, um, he was able to. We're in Second uh, Chronicles 21. Yeah, I was just grabbing that. So, uh, 
Yeah, we had finished up Jehoshaphat about how he gathered uh, all of Judah together for prayer whenever the three armies were coming against him. And he prayed that beautiful prayer in 2 Chronicles 20. Um, and God said, just stand still and wait and see what I'll do, uh, which is great. Um, we talked about the monergistic nature of salvation and um, how even all the babies and children stood before the Lord and worshipped him. And then um, the three armies ended up, God caused the three armies to fight each other instead of fight Judah. And then Judah uh, and Jehoshaphat went out to the battlefield and they just found all the dead bodies. Um, I've said this once, I'll say it a thousand times, the Bible is better than any Hollywood action movie you could ever want, but, um, you know, we kind of, skip over some of these stories sometimes. So um, Ammon, Moab, and the people of Mount Sire were defeated. And then uh, Jehoshaphat um, uh, died uh, soon after that, it seems. And uh, the people of Judah were in a pretty good place at that point, right? So verse 29 of chapter 20, um, right before 20... um, one, the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And um, seeing if there's another verse I was thinking of. Anyhow, um, right, Jehoshaphat had continued in the ways of his father, and he had um, caused all these reforms in, in Judah, and uh, they were worshiping the Lord. They were in a pretty good place. He's one of few of the one of the few good kings of the people of Judah, right? So that doesn't last long, unfortunately, because Jehoram, um, which, by the way, let me just point this out real quick. If you if you have one of these uh, reference sheets that I've handed out before with this chart on it, um, this is where things get a little confusing because in... Um, At the same time that Jehoram is reigning in Judah, Joram is reigning in Israel, and they both go by each other's names at times. So um, sometimes Joram is called Jehoram, sometimes it's called sometimes Jehoram is called Joram. You just have to pay really close attention to the context to see which, if it's talking about the king of Judah or the king of Israel, um, and not to mention that there's also going to be uh, Ahazot. Ziah next in Judah, who was the previous king in Israel. So um, you get, and then you have like, not not only that, but then you also have to remember that later on in Israel, there is a Jehoahaz, Jehoahash, Jeroboam, and then later on in uh, Judah, there's Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim. So um, in case none of that, and then the first king of Israel, of course, was Jeroboam. So If none of that is confusing enough for you, I don't know what is, but um, like I've said before, people are capable of learning minute details about like the Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, fantasy world or the Marvel universe or whatever. Um, So we can probably put in the work to figure out the Bible universe a little bit better than we normally do. So... All that said, uh, for today, Second Chronicles 21 is about Jehoram, king of Judah, son of Jehoshaphat, uh, who we just had talked about. Okay, well, Jehoram is an evil king. Um, he does not follow in the ways of his father, Jehoshaphat. And um, he's the firstborn of Jehoshaphat, and so he uh, takes the crown. He becomes king. And uh, we'll start with verse 4 to show you how nice of a guy he is. Now, when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with the sword and also other princes of Israel. So basically anyone that was a threat to his crown, a threat to his kingship, he just went ahead and killed, um, including his own brothers. And uh, that's the kind of guy Jehoram was. So very different than Jehoshaphat, 
as you can see, uh, not calling the people of Judah together for a day of national prayer, uh, but instead um, murdering his brothers for basically no good reason. Okay, he was uh, 32 when he became king. We'll kind of skip over that. Okay, uh, verse 6. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So notice there it's kind of interesting. Um, Judah's not that good uh, in the divided kingdom. Like, again, if you look at that chart, most of their kings end up being evil. But all of Israel's kings are evil. And there is still this, like, um, to use a biblical phrase, faintly burning wick of faith in Judah. It seems that really isn't there in Israel, right? So in Israel, they're basically wicked all the time for their entire existence until they're sent to Assyria in captivity. And the author of the Chronicles uses them as this kind of phrase to explain the wickedness of Jehoram, right? So he says, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, right? Instead of saying he walked in the, um, you know, he walked in evil ways or something kind of more generic like that, uh, he uses the kings of Israel as an example of wickedness. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, um, just as the house of Ahab had done. And then, uh, we have this line, for he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it doesn't really come up in the story of Jehoram, but his wife, um, if we look in Kings, Second Kings, I can't remember the chapter off the top of my head. Um, we'll get there eventually. We find out that her name is uh, Tilia, um, like that, I believe. And um, we will cover her in a couple chapters. Whenever, if you look at your divided kingdom chart, um, there is one king that's not really a king in Judah, but is a queen. Um, and that is Attilia. So she's going to end up taking over the throne in a couple of chapters. Um, so if you look, if you, if you have that chart and you look at Jehoram, and then you go down to after... Uh, Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, takes over the throne, then Attilia uh, is going to take over the throne in Second um, Chronicles, next, and basically in the next chapter after Ahaziah, um, 22, 23. So, oh, 2 Kings, Second Kings 8, 9, 10, 11, that's, that's where you'd find. Um, probably in chapter 8, I think it says that this is who it is, but... Anyway, um, yeah, so that, that's very interesting. She ends up also being a very evil queen. Um, the, the wrath of Attilia is um, similar to like we talked about in Israel um, with Jezebel, right? That, that you get this, uh, this kind of wicked queen figure that is in some ways more wrathful than the, than the kings, uh, interestingly. So um, that, that's kind of interesting. And, when, and I, I think it, it does show something about the – so obviously the Bible, you know, Ephesians 5, we can talk about this more later if you want, teaches about male headship. And when there's a failure of male headship, things tend to fall apart even more. So uh, I think you can kind of see that there. But anyway, so he had the, an evil wife as well. Um, Kind of the Judah version of, of Jezebel, if you will. Okay. Uh, then we, we I, I mentioned this verse earlier today, but we have verse 7. Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So we still have the preservation of the tribe of Judah uh, even during Jehoram's wicked reign. Um, God is still going to preserve this line from the tribe of David so that he can eventually bring about, uh, bring about Jesus, right? Uh, he will not completely destroy them. So now notice uh, there is a distinction between destruction, uh, destruction, 
there's a distinction between destruction and punishment. Okay, so the Lord can severely punish a people and preserve a faithful remnant um, while not completely destroying them. So just because um, the the Lord says he's not going to completely destroy something doesn't mean he can't severely punish that same thing. And the application for us today, I think, um, at least one that comes to mind for me, is uh, Matthew 16. What does Jesus say? He says, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Right. So God promises, much like he promised the people of Judah, that uh, he would preserve his people, preserve his church, preserve a faithful remnant. But uh, we also know that when God promised that to Judah, that didn't mean that most of the people didn't fall away. Right. If you look at the history of Israel and as we continue to look at the history of Judah, eventually they're going to end up in ex- exile to Babylon and they're going to be in some pretty dire straits. Uh, I think the same thing we need to be uh, careful of with today with with his church, that just because um, he promises that his church is going to survive uh, doesn't mean that. Our unfaithfulness, um, whatever unfaithfulness we might have, I mean, I think the LCMS, if kind of going back to our previous conversation, is a pretty faithful church body. But um, that modern day churches need to make sure that we're recognizing that just because God gives us this promise of he's going to preserve his church, we shouldn't ever become uh, kind of stagnant and just think, oh, everything's going to be fine no matter what, right? Um, and kind of become lukewarm, right, as, as Jesus warns about in Revelation. We should uh, continue, like I said, to reexamine the Bible, continue to, be, to turn back to his word, continue to confess our sins and receive forgiveness of them, uh, that we would not fall, fall into the ways of uh, Judah of old, for instance, become idolatrous. Um, right, it, it would be an easy, slow slide into unfaithfulness. And um, God isn't going to destroy us. That's true. He's going to preserve a faithful remnant. Uh, but that doesn't mean he can't, he might not punish us, right? So um, that's always something to keep in mind. I know that's a very uplifting and encouraging note for everyone, but uh, it is something to keep, to keep in mind. Uh, that that distinction is there. Okay. So, uh, yeah, v- verse 8. So, and, and notice immediately there are kind of earthly consequences to Jehoram's unfaithfulness that um, Edom, which was, Edom was basically, they weren't really Israelites, but uh, under Solomon's reign, Edom had come under the control of Judah and had basically remained kind of a vassal state of Judah until this time. Um, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. And uh, and then also, if you skip down to verse 10, um, oh, and then so thus Edom, and it goes on about Jehoram tried to prevent this, but it didn't it didn't work well. Uh, thus, Edom had been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, the time of the writing of Second Chronicles. And then Libna also revolted against his rule, so same kind of situation, uh, because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Um, so God does give earthly blessings and earthly consequences for faithfulness and for sin. We always need to distinguish that, of course, from like Joel Steen, prosperity gospel. Um, that's not the same thing that just because we uh, strive to follow God's law doesn't mean, you know, we're going to get the Lamborghini we always wanted or whatever, um, things like that. But 
God does send earthly blessings uh, when you line your life up with his will, and he does give earthly consequences to those who fight against him. Um, that is a pretty basic biblical doctrine. Uh, and so uh, you can see that happening here, that due to Jehoram's unfaithfulness, he has these nations revolt against him. Um, moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah, the same high places that his father and grandfather had torn down. He made them and led Judah straight to commit uh, harlotry and um, another way to say idolatry. So if you remember the prophet, um, which prophet is it that has to marry a prostitute? Joel? No. Um, Micah? No. Malachi? No. It is a, it's a minor prophet. It's a minor prophet. Uh, oh, ha, um, no. Oh, Obadiah, is that right? No, that's not right. Hosea, that's who it is, Hosea. I knew once I saw the name, I would remember. It's Hosea. Hosea has to marry uh, um, the prostitute as a symbol of the, idolat the idolatry or kind of adultery that, that Israel committed against the Lord, right? Because the bride of the Lord is his people, the church. And so idolatry and adultery are connected. That's why... We see the word there, at least in the New King James Version, of um, that he led the people to commit harlotry or adultery, right, and led Judah astray. Um, so that's what's going on there. Okay. Um, what time is it? Okay, that's a, that's about time. We'll cover his death next week. Um, his death is kind of interesting because it's a almost an uneventful death, but the way that it's described is very interesting in Second Chronicles. Um, 21. So we'll look at that next week. Any final questions or comments on Jehoram or anything else we talked about today? Okay. Let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for sending your son Jesus to be our prophet, priest, and king, for giving us your word made in the flesh, in the incarnation of him for being our sacrifice, both the priest and the sacrifice itself for our sins, and for reigning as our king. We pray that he would come again soon, that he would reign over king for us, that every knee would bow before him, that in that final epiphany we would see him as he is. We pray that you would bless our worship today in spirit and truth as we come to receive your word and blessed sacrament. We pray that you would open the hearts and minds of all here to hear your word and to be blessed by the receiving of your body and blood, your son's body and blood. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.